as many, most of you will know, I've been teaching a series um, on and off um, on the book of Philippians. Um, we're up to part six, and uh, that's where we're going to start at today. So, by way of introduction, the theme of the book of Philippians, as we've gone through in the other weeks, is that the church should always be moving forward in unity and not backward, no matter what the trials or the persecution are. In the last lesson, we finished by talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and how they were used, how God um, used them, how they had the mind of Christ, how they were, were moving forward despite the things that happened in their lives. Um, Epaphroditus in particular was, was very sick unto, unto death because he was working for God. And there, there were examples of Paul's own life. There were examples of Timothy. There were examples of Epaphroditus. Uh, Paul was a Hebrew, a full, full Jew. Timothy was a half-Jew, half-Gentile, and Epaphroditus was almost certainly a Gentile. So when you have all of the different mixes, anybody who was a Jew, anybody who wasn't, then we realize that anybody can be transformed into an amazing servant of Christ. And that is where we left last time, last lesson, lesson five. So if we have the next slide, and we'll just very briefly go over um, the actual um, layout of uh, where Philippi is. Um, so on the right-hand side down the bottom, we have the nation of Israel. All the way up top to the left in Macedonia, we have Philippi. God, um, through a dream, uh, sent uh, Paul um, to uh, Macedonia. And, and when he obeyed that instruction, then uh, the church at Philippi um, was established. Um, now, Philippi was basically a little Rome. Um, it had been liberated uh, by the, the Roman Empire, and they basically had the same privileges as, uh, the, its citizens had the same privileges as Roman citizens. So it was a little Rome, and it was Rome in its thinking, and it, in its actions, in, in its culture, um, and also in the way in which it persecuted the church. Um, so the people at uh, the, the Philippians, the Philippian church, uh, were um, going through um, very often trials and tribulations because of the attitude of Romans towards the church of God. So they, they were not um, having an easy life. Uh, and basically, the book of Philippians talks a lot about joy and and joy in, in the middle of trials and tribulations, and how Paul had joy. He wrote the book from prison. And, and, the, and we're going to talk a little bit about joy this morning. Um, but there, there was something that, uh, there, there were a few things that he wanted to get across to the Philippians. So this lesson, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Next slide, please. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. So once again, I'm going to be following very closely to Brother Brian Kinsey's 
study on the Philippians called Philippians the Bride's Prize, taking uh, some excerpts and uh, as I felt led by the Lord. So when we look at the word translated finally here, it doesn't mean that Paul's about to close the letter. For the word finally means the rest or that which remains. In this chapter, Paul introduced another major thought, not the concluding remarks that typically come at the end of, uh, of an epistle. So sometimes he says finally, and then he greets lots of people in the church. But this finally meant, this is, this is the, the final major point that I want to make. Paul had written so far about heavy matters, the urgent circumstances that he faced. He didn't know whether he was going to live or die in prison. The need for unity based on the self-sacrificial mind of Christ and the sorrow he had felt over the, the very serious illness of their friend Epaphroditus. Paul had soldered these heavier topics with references to his own joy in chapter 1 verse 4 in, and, and verse 18, chapter 1 verse 18, in chapter 2 verse 2 and verses 16 to 18 of chapter 2 and the hope for joy of the Philippians. He wanted the Philippians to be joyful as well. In chapter 1, verses 25 to 26, chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, and verse 28. We've looked at those verses um, in previous lessons. So he's mentioned joy quite a few times. Um, In fact, he mentions joy quite a few times during the epistle. Yet he was determined that no hint of despair should enter their minds. So despite the circumstances that they were facing and he was facing, He strongly exhorted them to rejoice in the Lord, which was a message that he wanted to repeat again and again. Better safe than sorry, Paul seemed to be saying. It was far better for him to repeat this phrase over and over again than to risk the Philippians slipping into a negative frame of mind. Every child of God has to defeat the killjoys in life. And Brother Brian goes through four different killjoys that can affect the people of God. First, trials and tribulations can definitely be a challenge. This may have been primarily on Paul's mind when he wrote to the Philippians, given the uncertainty of his own situation. The person whose happiness depends on having ideal circumstances will be miserable most of the time. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter filled with joy even through the worst of circumstances, demonstrating that our circumstances do not have to steal our joy. The second killjoy is that mean people can vex your spirit and steal your joy. Paul may have had this in mind because there are tensions that existed in the Philippian church, as we'll get to in a later lesson. We are the light of the world and the salt of the earth as Jesus says in the Gospels. But sometimes the light grows dim and the salt becomes bitter because of other people. However, according to Paul, there must be a way to preserve our joy despite the friction we experience in relationships. Our joy should not be dependent on how we relate to other people or how we feel that they are treating us. We should be able to have a joy in the Lord no matter what's going on around us. Thirdly, you can get wrapped up, so wrapped up in things and possessions that your life is totally consumed 
with what you have or do not have. Jesus said, a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned against laying up treasures on earth. They can be stolen, they can rust out, and they never will satisfy the longing in anyone's heart. God can use our possessions as a resource to accomplish His purpose, but when we are obsessed with our possessions, they can rob us of the only kind of joy that really lasts. Later in this epistle, Paul would write about his own ability to be joyful, whether in poor or in wealth, whether hungry or well-fed. Joy does not depend on the things that we possess. And the fourth killjoy is that everyone has to deal with anxiety and worry because it can sap our will to live and kill our joy. Clearly, Paul had overcome the trap of worry, which promises no change in our circumstances, but only makes us feel worse. He wrote a letter filled with joy and was eager for his fellow believers, the Philippians, to be free from worry as well, as he wrote in chapter 2 and verse 28. So how do we stop these attackers of faith and experience joy that should be ours in Christ? We must adopt the mindset of Christ. We've talked about the mind of Christ in, our, in previous uh, lessons. If our outlook determines our outcome, then possessing the selfless, surrendered mind of Christ will produce joy regardless of our circumstances, the actions of other people, the lack of material things or worry. In this letter, Paul not only urged his readers to practice joy, but also described four attitudes of the mind of Christ that produced joy. These aspects of the mind of Christ are embedded in each of the four chapters of this epistle, of this book. So once again, we've looked at four killjoys. Now we've lo- we're going to look at four ways in which we can defeat killjoys. First is the right focus. Throughout chapter 1, and especially in chapter 1, verse 21, Paul described his own single focus on doing the will of Christ. Because he had purged his mind of selfish motives, he was not tempted to despair by anything that affected him personally. His eyes were on the prize. His eyes were on Jesus and in in filling his will in his life. James wrote, A double-minded mind, sorry, a double-minded man, um, there we go. Uh, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James chapter 1 and verse 8. Paul had a single focus. For me to live is Christ. Philippians 1, 21. He did not look at circumstances in themselves, but only in their relationship to Jesus Christ. He saw himself not as a prisoner of the Roman Empire, but as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, as Ephesians 3 and 1 says. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He wasn't a prisoner of the Romans. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He was there for the will of God. He was doing the will of God. He was completely in the will of God. And so he knew that he didn't have to worry about his circumstances. God would take care of him.
His shackles were not mere chains, but were his bonds in Christ. As he says in Philippians 1 and 13, he was not facing a trial, but was set for the defense of the gospel. He did not look at Christ through his circumstances. Rather, he looked at his circumstances through Christ. That changed everything. It's a complete change of focus. It's a complete change of, of mindset. Most of the time, we seem to look at Jesus through our circumstances. It colors our view of Jesus. It changes our view of Jesus. It, it reduces the, the power that Jesus can have in our lives. But when we look at Jesus, and then we look at our circumstances through him, then everything changes. Everything makes sense. Everything is put into its right place. The second defeat of killjoys is submission. Paul did not expect others to serve him. He served others. He considered the good of others to be more important than his own plans and his own desires. In Philippians 2, Paul mentioned the four wonderful examples of the submissive mind. Jesus Christ in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Paul in chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Timothy in chapter 2, verses 19 to 24. And Epaphroditus in chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. These were all men that were following God. And we know that Jesus was more than a man. Each of these examples proves the principle that for whoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. As Luke chapter 14 verse 11 says, the secret to joy is in making others and not yourself the chief concern. When we're more concerned about other people, we will have joy. Third um, way of getting rid of killjoys is having a heavenly mindset. Paul used the word things 11 times in the book of, uh, sorry, in uh, the third chapter of Philippians. He acknowledged that many people allow distractions to affect their mind and consequently mind earthly things, as we will get to when we get to verse 19, but not this lesson. But once children of God are transformed, their mindset is changed and they're more concerned about heavenly things. For our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that when we eventually get to verse 20. When our minds have been renewed by the Word, by Jesus, we begin to develop a spiritual mind that sees the things that happen, that ha- that happen to us from heaven's point of view. We don't look at it from our own selfish perspective of how much it's hurting us, but we can look at it from his perspective. Focusing only on the present moment, where we're at, what we're feeling, what, how, how everything seems to be in our own minds, in our own hearts, is sure to bring ups and downs that lead eventually to pessimism or despair. You go on a roller coaster for long enough, and you're going to start to, to, to get, get lower. Keeping an eternal outlook brings joy. And the fourth is, in com- is confidence. 
Philippians chapter 4, when we get to that, describes the spiritual resources the believer has in Christ. God's peace in chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. God's power in chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. And God's provision in chapter 4, verses 14 to 23. Armed with these promises and blessed with these resources, we can overcome anything in life. In verse 7, we have the peace of God that guards us, but we also have his guidance in verse 9. The peace of God comes to us when we pray the right way in verses 6 to 7, when we allow the word to discipline our thought life in verse 8, and when we change our behavior to live as Jesus taught us to live in verse 9. This is God's secret for victory over intimidation, fear, and anxiety. We can have a confidence in God that he will not let us be um, challenged or overcome with a trial or a situation that we are not able to handle, that he doesn't know that we can handle. We can have a confidence in Jesus that whatever we're going through, it's for his purpose. It's for his will and it's to bring us closer to him and help us to be able to reach out to others in a greater way. Paul gave us the proper remedy to life's challenges that invade our minds, distract our focus, and erode our peace. He pleaded with God's people to learn to pray in the proper way. He said that we should submit our requests to God with thanksgiving. And when we do, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. That's verse 7 of chapter 4. Circumstances... Do not give the kind of joy Paul was referring to. When everything's going our way, when we feel incredibly blessed, that's not the kind of joy that Paul is talking about. That's a fleeting emotion that we get. This joy is not a feeling. It is an indescribable inward assurance that God is at work in the midst of every situation that we face. If we can trust in Him... And don't lean on our own understanding, but allow the Word, allow the Bible, allow Him to talk to us, to adjust our focus on God's eternal plan, then our joy can become full. It's not going to be uh, based or related to our circumstances, to how we're feeling, to what we're going through right now, but it's going to be based on Him and our knowledge that He is with us in every situation. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us as he promised in his word. It is evident in this epistle that Paul was able to experience this joy. And he wanted others to enjoy himself in that experience so that their thinking, their feelings, and their actions would all agree in one purpose to bring glory and honor to Jesus. After all, that's what it's all about. Isn't that what? We're striving towards. We want to bless Jesus. We want to do his will. We want to allow him to have his will in our way so that he can use us. He can use us to reach others. He can use us to encourage others. He can use us in the way that he wants to use us. It is one of the first and the best um, things that happen when we have the mind of Christ. Those who focus their attention on Jesus and seek to put the needs of others ahead of their own experience, of their own will. Oh, sorry, let me get, 
Start that again. Those who focus their attention on Jesus and seek to put the needs of others ahead of their own will, their own selves, their own desires, will experience a deep happiness that lifts them above their own circumstances. This is what we mean by the joy of the Lord. Next verse. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. There was false teaching that was leading many early Christians into a kind of, of legalism uh, according to the way that the Pharisees would define they should live. A pharisaical legalism. We refer to these people as Judaizers and Paul condemned them in harsh terms. What they wanted them to do was force Christians to live by the law, basically, by all of the different um, things that the law has put forward. But Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to get people to follow it um, in every in every law and in every circumstance. It's interesting to note that most devout Jews of that era would refer to Gentiles as dogs. In that culture, dogs were not kept as pets, but were considered undesirable animals. Paul turned the tables by referring to this super devout group of Jews as dogs. This was not mere name-calling. Paul was comparing these false teachers to dirty scavengers who were a danger to people. Like dogs, these Judaizers followed Paul and snapped at his heels everywhere he went, doing their best to spread the false doctrine that had clearly been uh, refused and, and removed, refuted in Acts chapter 15 when the church put forward the things that, uh, that the Gentile church needed to follow. Paul also called them evil workers and cautioned against them. In fact, he devoted the entire epistle of the Galatians to refuting these false ideas. These men taught that a sinner was saved by following the law of Moses and Jesus. The danger was that Christians would be led right back into bondage. The law was a bondage from which Jesus had released them. Paul understood the truth. Salvation was in Jesus and in him alone not by the works of the law, not by the acts which they did, but by Jesus. As Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. The term concision is connected to the word circumcision and means mutilation. In response to the Judaizers' teaching that circumcision was essential to salvation, Paul defended the council's position by calling circumcision mutilation. Very strong words. Paul continued his warning against these false teachers by refuting, by rejecting their central doctrine. We are the circumcision, he said, not them. These teachers claimed that they were the true heirs of salvation and their circumcision was evidence of it. But Paul turned that idea on its head. The true worshippers of God are not those who worship in a temple and practice elaborate rituals, 
but rather they worship God in the Spirit. It's not by our acts. It's not by the things we do. It's not by rituals that we do that's going to get us to heaven, but it's by following Jesus. Next verse, next slide, please. Philippians 3, 4 to 6. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul lays out his own credentials as being better than the Judaizers that he was talking about, the ones that, that were, were, were putting themselves up as, as being great men of God. Paul was circumcised the eighth day, which was the primary mark of Jewish identity. He was of the stock of Israel, meaning that he was a direct descendant of the patriarch Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. There were other nations that could say that they were descendants of Abraham, but not everybody could say that they were descendants of Jacob. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only tribe that stayed with the nation of Judah when there was the split in the nations between Israel and Judah. Therefore, Paul could confidently say that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, meaning that both of his parents were Jews, giving him an impeccable ancestry of Jewishness. With regard to the way that he observed the Jewish religion, Paul said that he was, as touching the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most dedicated of the four sects of Judaism. Jesus battled incessantly with them because they refused to acknowledge and recognize his anointing. As, as uh, Jesus goes into in Matthew 23, verses 1 to 29, and Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. The Sadducees, by contrast, had a more liberal outlook on Scripture and claimed that there was no resurrection, which was false, as we see in Mark 12, 18, and Acts 23 and 8. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, and in Acts 23, 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. The third sect were the Essenes. They were uh, a very strict group that advocated a withdrawal from society. They went out and they, they... they were kind of like hermits. And while the zealots, the fourth group, were bent on revolution, they took things to the extreme. The Pharisees that Paul belonged to were known for their strict observance of both the law and the teachings of the rabbis. As a Pharisee, Paul would have followed every requirement of the law to the very letter. He's really stating his credentials here. Paul was not a Jew in name only. He was a zealous defender of Jewish faith and practice to the point that he was willing to track down Christians who he at first saw as perverting the true faith and hand them over for punishment. He was zealous. He wanted to follow God 
in the best way that he possibly could. And Paul claimed that he was concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He was diligent in fulfilling the, fulfilling the requirements of the law. He did everything without hesitation. Next slide, please. But what things were gained to me, all of this credentials, all of these things that he could stand and say, I am blameless. I am a great Jew. I am, um, you know, I was following God in the best way that I ever knew how. Well, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Here we see Paul examining his past life and counting his wins and losses in a religious sense. In the past, Paul considered those things as gain, as something that he could look to, as something that he could be proud of. But now those things that were gained to him, he considered a loss for Christ. Paul knew that his pedigree provided him with great prestige and social standing. He was a he was young up-and-coming Pharisee. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He, he had all of the credentials that anyone could ever want to rise up high and become great among the Pharisees. But it worked to the detriment of his soul and could never bring him closer to Jesus, which was God's true plan for his life. Paul had to examine his life to become honest about the true condition of his heart. He came to the shocking conclusion that he was empty and without God in the world. Without Christ, he was bankrupt. He had nothing if he didn't have Jesus. Next slide. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul declared that he counted all things as lost because when he compared those things to the excellency of knowing Jesus, they paled in comparison. Paul lost everything, his religion, his reputation, his status in life, but what he won was more than all of that combined. As we follow his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, we see that he valued both his Jewish heritage and his Roman citizenship. When Paul was transformed by the power of God, he became the man that God originally intended him to be. Instead of going through motions of powerless and empty religion, he started acting like Jesus. As Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, he's exhorting the church to, to do these things. There was, these were things he was doing himself. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's not something great. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Paul was not asking them to do something that he wasn't doing himself. God knows how to take away the bad, but he also knows how to retain the good and make it even better. Paul wanted to make it perfectly clear that there was no comparison between what he had given up for Christ and the tremendous value he found in knowing Jesus 
Anything we have to leave behind to follow Jesus is not worth it. He gives us more. He gives us greater. He gives us more powerful things to overcome, to, to be good, to be like him than we could ever have lost. He emphasized this by using one of the most graphic phrases in Scripture, that the things the world considered gain were to him like dung. The word translated dung can also mean refuse or scraps of food. Whether it's talking about literal dung or it's talking about refuse, the message is clear. The things of this world are garbage compared to the tremendous value of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It has been observed that the greatest threat to Christian faith in our age is not other religions or even this world that doesn't want to know God. It is consumerism. We are surrounded by trinkets, gadgets, pleasures and delights that all seem to be of great value. And we are no less prone to wanting recognition, honor or status than those people were in Paul's day. We spend most of every day laboring for the things we think have value. Homes, cars, promotions, bonuses, vacations. This is all worthless, Paul said, compared with knowing Jesus. These are not bad things, but our focus needs to be right. This is all worthless, yes, Paul said, compared with knowing Jesus. Remember the words of Christ himself, for what shall it profit a man? if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man exchange for his own soul? When we compare ourselves to ourselves or even to one another, we, can, we may come off looking pretty good. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not like that person. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm better than, than that person. Hey, I'm doing okay. It isn't difficult to appear more righteous than another human being. But this has never been by the standard by which we're going to be judged of Jesus. To base our future hope on being a smidgen better than the person next to us is useless. Paul wrote, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. The Bible says it's very foolish to compare yourself with someone else in terms of spirituality, in terms of how you're following God. God has given us our own measuring stick by which he measures us by. Based on where he has led us, based on what he has asked us to do, we cannot compare ourselves to someone else's measuring stick. They might be doing a lot better than ourselves when, when measured on Jesus' measuring stick. But our own pride considers ourselves better than others. And we could be way down on that stick. Lord, help us to measure ourselves by your stick. Next verse. Next slide. That I may know him and the powers of his resurrection. He's looking at the end game here. And the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. 
if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. He wants to please Jesus. He wants to be Christ-like in every way. When Paul said that he wanted to know Christ, he, uses, he used a word that means to recognize or become acquainted with. Paul wanted a personal knowledge of Christ. Christ, not one that was just theoretical or, or one that was for his own purposes. This is a hallmark of the Christian faith, a personal relationship with God. You can come to church, you can go through the motions, but if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you don't submit yourself to him, if you don't allow him to lead you, even to places you don't want to go, then you don't have that personal relationship with God. This personal knowledge has always been the desire of God, his original intention. He said through the prophet Hosea, I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. He wasn't that cared, caring that much about the burnt offerings. He put that into place, but he was caring about people's hearts. He wanted them to know him. He wanted them to have a heart relationship with him, not just a, a works, I'm doing this because I know it's the right thing to do. He wanted it to come from the heart. Meaning that even in Old Testament times, it was a relationship with God and not rituals for their own sake that mattered, that made the difference. Before Paul was converted, he had complete confidence in his own righteousness based on his birth, his identity as a Jew, and his religious practice as a Pharisee. He was standing on those things. After meeting Jesus, he set it all aside. He had confidence only in Jesus' death and resurrection on his behalf. As Galatians 6 and 14 says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. That's pretty strong words. He gained a new righteousness. He gained a new power, as we're seeing in those verses. Far too many Christians are excited about the prospect of power and resurrection, but have little interest in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Paul showed us that the two are linked. You can't have resurrection, you can't have power without having Christ's suffering as well. We cannot hope to take part in the resurrection without being buried with Christ into his death. Through baptism, through following him. Next verse, next slide, please. Not as though I had already attained or made it. Either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Jesus was driving him on to perfection and he wanted to make sure that he was right. There has been a great debate among Christians about how the degree to which we can achieve perfection in this life. Perfect love of Christ and others is the goal of every Christian. It should be. If it's not, then we need to realign 
our thinking and the way in our, our, our desires. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can discern the will of God. As Romans 12 and 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We want to walk by the Spirit and have nothing to do with the old acts of the sinful nature. As Romans 8 and 5 says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. However, none of us can claim to have reached a point of spiritual maturity beyond which no growth is necessary. Greatly used ministers that have been used for many years and they're in their older, older years, they may have retired from the ministry and they're saying, there's still things God is dealing with me about. He's still calling me higher. He still wants me to go closer to him. We can never say that we've reached the mark. But Jesus continually draws us. He pulls us towards that mark that he wants us to get to. Before we get to heaven, we will be continually transformed into the likeness of Christ if we let him. If Paul reckoned that he still had room to grow, <laughs> how, how, how often do we look up to Paul as an incredible example of following Jesus? If Paul reckoned that he still had room to grow, we must admit the same about ourselves. In spiritual terms, it is always better to keep focused on the goal than to be excited and revel in the progress already made. We can't live on yesterday's experiences. That's not going to get, push us forward. That's not going to get us to the end mark, to the end goal. As one saint put it, if you are seeking the mind of Christ, that's as good as having it. And if you have it, you might as well go on seeking. We are always a work in progress. Next slide, please. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It wasn't something that was just casual. But there was a pressing, there was, there was a desire, there was a pushing, there was an effort, a supreme effort to reach that prize. The statement by Paul that he had not already fully attained the mind of Christ was that of a great Christian who never permitted himself to be satisfied with his own past achievements, spiritual achievements. A divine discontent is essential for progressing Christian growth. We want to get closer to Jesus. We should never be satisfied. We should never be content with where we have reached because he's always calling us higher. We can never be satisfied with comparing our growth to that of other Christians. Paul knew that to do this would be folly, would be foolishness, and would eventually lead to complacency and slow his pursuit. 
of the prize, the high calling in Christ Jesus. Paul focused on the one thing that mattered most, pursuing the prize. In his single-minded effort to win Christ, he developed a tunnel vision that became the most productive choice he ever made in his life, even when he considered all that he had given up. So much of the Christian life boils down to having the right priority. Jesus told the rich young ruler, one thing you lack in order to test his willingness to put Christ first in Mark chapter 10 and verse 21. We must learn the art of forgetting those things which are behind. It is true we can't make ourselves forget, but we can refocus our attention on the future rather than dwelling in the past. If you're always living in the past, then where are you going to head? Where is your focus? You can't be focused on Jesus if you're always dwelling in the past, in the regrets, in the things that have happened. You need to be focusing on Jesus. When we choose to focus on what God is able to do in the future, we, would, we are declaring that our past will no longer hinder our future. Our forgetting becomes a jailbreak to escape the hold and power the past has had over us. Too many people are living in the past and can't see the future in Jesus. We will no longer be held captive by the negative impact of yesterday's decisions and consequences. They're done. They're gone. Jesus wants us to look to the prize. Although we cannot change what happened yesterday, we can change the effect it has on us. We can change how we act and react. We can change how we we serve Jesus. The power of the cross can free us from the regrets and guilt of the past. So let's run this race with victory by focusing our attention, not on the past, but on the promises of God. You can't win a race if you run while looking backward. True fact. You can only win when you look ahead. Here, Paul revealed his future goal and his determination to achieve it. The verb translated, I press, means to pursue earnestly, to expend great energy to acquire. The same verb is translated as, I follow after, in verse 12, that we just looked at. The Greeks used this word to describe a hunter eagerly pursuing prey. No one becomes a champion athlete by lying on a couch or even by talking about training and competition. An athlete achieves greatness through determination translated into action. Paul was determined not to miss out on victory. He pursued the mark or goal with single-minded determination. The same zeal that Paul had, has, Paul had employed as a persecutor of the church, as we saw in verse 6, he now displayed in serving Jesus. It is time for the church to pursue the prize with the same determination with which athletes pursue their careers. Can you imagine what kind of potential we would unlock if everyone with one mind pursued the prize of becoming like Jesus? The blessing of that would be unlimited. We must defeat the passive spirit that is so prevalent in today's culture. Although we are fully aware of the fact we cannot achieve the mind of Christ on our own, 
Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. God still expects and demands our cooperation. We must apply ourselves and do our part. No covenant is one-sided in effort and terms. And Jesus has made a covenant with us. One party may be superior by far. And in the case of our blood covenant with Jesus, that is definitely true. But we must still fulfill our obligations, do our part, commit to do the daily work that God expects of us. God will not do our work for us just as we cannot do his work for him. The mind and thoughts of God are not automatic. Therefore, we must bring our thoughts into captivity. As it says in 2 Corinthians 10 and 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We must diligently seek, knock, ask, and pursue the things of God. Next slide, please. As Paul urged Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, exercise thyself rather unto godliness, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profits little. It doesn't profit nothing, but it profits little. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. We know that exercise has a huge effect on our own bodies. But compared to the effect that following Jesus has, it profits little. We have a work to do, so let's do it. Paul made a powerful point. As the athlete is rewarded for his performance, so the faithful believer will be crowned when Jesus Christ returns. As it says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself also should be a castaway. There's a determination. There's, there's, there's not wasted energy in just beating the air. But there is a focus. There is an action. There is a determination. There is a drive to reach that prize. God has a high calling for every believer, a high watermark that he wants us to reach, to obtain. The most important thing is that we reach his goal and be sure not to miss that mark. God wants us to enjoy the best he has to offer, and he wants us to become so focused and determined that we'll continue to seek until we find the prize. The prize is not for apostles or leaders only, but for all believers. If you remember way back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, the book was written to all the saints at Philippi, with bishops and deacons included as a secondary thought. The questions we should ask is, what progress have I made regarding transformation into being like Jesus? Do my attitudes display the thought patterns of Jesus or of my own selfish desires? Am I intent in pursuing being like Christ 
as my first and my highest goal? Or do I have other things that are more important? These are the things that we need to consider. If I could get someone to the piano, please. And if we could all stand. We had a tongue interpretation this morning about going. But when our focus is wrong, we'll find it hard to do that. God will not be able to lead us in the way he wants us to do. He will not be able to follow his guiding, his leading, his will for our lives. So I want to challenge everybody this morning. Let's focus on the prize. Let's not worry about the things around us. Let's forget the past. We may never be able to physically forget, but let's forget the past by focusing on the future. Let's defeat the killjoys of our life by following Jesus, by having a confidence in Him, by allowing Him to draw us closer, by having His mind and bringing our thoughts and our imaginations in line with Him. If the Lord has been touching your heart as He touched mine when I was preparing this, then I ask that you would come, that you would set your mind on the things of Christ, that there, there would be a determination to do His will and to do His plan, to reach that mark that He wants you to reach and not languish down, not to compare ourselves with others and think that we're okay, but that we would allow ourselves to be submitted to Him and His plan for our lives. If the Lord is talking to you, I ask you to come. If you just want to consecrate your life again and say, God, I want to keep going in the right way, then I ask you to come. Be challenged. Allow the Lord to reach into your heart and to keep your mind and heart open to Him.